0: body So
1: wait us down, we'll fade and fall.
2: Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all. It's a joy to be able to gather together and um, worship together. And for all the moms in the room, Happy Mother's Day. It is so good to have you join us. We hope you feel appreciated this morning. We appreciate you. And there will be more about that uh, coming up soon. Uh, We begin our services with a call to worship. Would you stand with us? Uh, We're going to hear from Psalm 95... These are the first seven verses. Let me read the loud for us. "O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's pray. Oh God, help us, please help us to fulfill this call to worship you this morning. God, your power and your majesty is beyond measure. You are a great God. You have every right to be worshipped. And it's our joy to be worshippers. So thank you for bringing us into this place today. Would you remind us of reason upon reason to worship you? For how you've cared for us. How you've provided for us. For how you've saved us through Christ. Would you remind us of what we are to be thankful for, that we may come into your presence with thanksgiving, that we may respond rightly and be changed by worship. We thank you for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sing together.
1: Come and stand. stars above, is the God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love. Rejoice, come and lift your hands and raise your voice, he is worthy of all praise. Rejoice, sing the mercies of your King. With sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. of your King and with trembling rejoice and all our sickness all our sorrows Jesus carried up the hill he has walked this path before us He is walking with us still, turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle, so take heart and stand amazed. Rejoice, when you cry to Him, He hears your voice. Wipe away your tears, rejoice, in the midst of suffering, He will help you sing, rejoice, lift your hands and raise your of your king and with dread
2: Listen to this uh, passage from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul here, he's reminding us that our hope is not in earthly matters, but found in Christ. And our hope in Christ will be made manifest when he comes again. We're going to be learning a new song over the next few weeks that helps kind of focus our attention on this hope that we have in the return of Christ. Um. And all that he will do when he returns. So I would encourage you to sing as you feel comfortable. We actually played this as the prelude to the service, so if you were in the room, you've heard a little bit of it already. Um, But I would encourage you to sing as you're comfortable and rejoice in the reality of our our certain hope in Jesus. Let's sing together. when christ a life appears our hope will be complete our longings finally rest as we fall at his feet when jesus comes to reign restoring everything our tears will turn to tides of praises to our king
1: we're longing for that day see christ uh, say.
2: trials that weighed us down
1: will fade and fall
3: Good morning. Welcome to City Church. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. Um, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Mother's Day is one of those days when we have an opportunity as a body of Christ to practice that distinctly Christian Romans chapter 12 rhythm in which we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn or weep with those Are mourning, and every single Mother's Day, I'm just struck by how intense both of those things are a lot of rich celebration, a lot of very intense grieving and mourning. So, great opportunity to celebrate, great opportunity to be aware of those who are, in fact, hurting um, and care for them well today. Uh, I'll say more about moms at the end of the sermon, actually. Uh, and do a special prayer then, but I want to let you know that we have gifts. So Esther Frakowitz is kind of our Mother's Day gift guru. That is her saying now. She's got that on lockdown. Uh, So you'll see these bottles kind of throughout the lobby and in the children's areas. Uh, Just take one. If you're a mom, uh, please take one of those bottles. It is our gift to you. Here's our description. I just loved it so much. I wanted to read it to you just so you know what you're getting into. Okay, so the gift for moms this year is a eucalyptus shower spray, hmm? Um, to create a spa-like experience at home, the instructions are to spray as you take a shower, and the heat and the steam will fill the room with the relaxing scent of eucalyptus." Huh? So, we have those bottles in the lobby again, and then we have them in the uh, kids' community, uh, community room area and the children's room, so we would encourage you to pick those up after the service, and we will remind you. We would love to be connected with you, whoever you are. Um, so, There's a couple ways you can do this. Number one, please consider filling out a connection card. We put those in your bulletin. When you walk in, you get a bulletin, there's a connection card. Uh, Prayer requests are greatly solicited, appreciated. We want to pray for you. We do that as a staff um, each week. And so consider putting at least a prayer request on there and then slipping that card in the seat pocket in front of you. We'll pick them up after the service. You can put your name on it. You can make it anonymous, however you want to do it. Obviously, if you want to communicate with us about what's happening in our church, ask us questions, seek out pastoral care. Uh, definitely put your name, and we're very responsive to those cards. The same card is available online, citychurchgnv.com uh, connections, so we'd encourage you to fill that out if you don't have a physical card. It goes to the same place. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as the people of God is giving generously. Uh, you can, again, give online, citychurchgnv.com give, or there's that brown box in the back of the sanctuary with envelopes and pens, and that's also available for connection cards if you want to stick those in there. As well, a couple of announcements, Um, number one, our community groups, kind of the relational life backbone of our church that meet every week in people's homes, those are going on for a few more weeks until they take a break, Um, basically depending on the group, some groups are taking a break for like six weeks, some for more like 10 weeks over the summer. Uh, But all the groups go on break starting on Memorial Day weekend, so we would very much encourage you, if you haven't yet, there's still a few weeks for you to get plugged in, so at least you'll meet some people, know some people, and those groups will continue to do things organically over the summer. It's not like they're going to shut down entirely and not see each other. you know. Um, So these are groups of people that meet in people's homes, they pray together, they share a meal together, we talk about Sunday morning sermons, how they apply to the rhythms of everyday life, we serve our city together, we do a lot of kind of things together. So there's nine of them. Uh, there's information on the hospitality table in the back. They are always open to everybody. Groups are never closed. You don't have to be on a waiting list, none of that. So that's available. They're still going for a few more weeks, and then they'll be on a, a break. Some, some will resume right after July 4th weekend. some will resume in August. So just a heads up, we have a street outreach team that goes out at least once a month and ministers to people who are in our community, who are neighbors who uh, don't have homes right now. So they are meeting again next Sunday. And they're meeting, I believe, yes, at 1:15. They're meeting in the sanctuary, so right here. So if you want to go out with this street outreach team um, and meet people in our community and have conversations, you can come next Sunday, 1:15. If you haven't done this before, you're like, I'm very intrigued, but this would be a completely new ball game for me. We would love to have you just come early, come at one o'clock, and there's people that are on our team that will be there in the sanctuary, and they can kind of tell you what going on, give you the ropes, give you a quick bit of training so that you can go out and be a part of it. So that would be next Sunday. We would love to see you. Uh, Next Sunday, we are also, Lord willing, um, assuming there aren't any last-minute changes, doing a baptism celebration right across the street in the parking lot. So after the second service, next Sunday, baptism celebration in the parking lot across the street. Um, Come one, come all. It's fairly quick. It's usually like a 15-minute sort of thing. So if you go to the second service, just chat a little bit in the sanctuary, then go outside. We, we fill up this Rubbermaid tub and we do it right there. Um, if you go to the first service, you know, go do your thing, go do your, your brunch, have a nice time at the park, then come back after the second service and be a part of it. Um, one of the most important things we do in the life of the church, uh, something that we really encourage everybody in our church family to, to come out to, bring the kids. I can't imagine a more formative opportunity than to have your kids there watching someone get dunked in a Rubbermaid tub in the parking lot. Um, so, Hopefully, we will see you there um, next Sunday. Our scripture passage for this morning is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the second half of the chapter, so verses 16 through 33. We have a few more weeks in this series, so if you've been loving it, we have a few more weeks in this series. If you haven't been loving it, we only have a few more weeks left in this series. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33, the passage will be up here on the screen. Uh, for you to follow along. However, if you have a Bible, we encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us throughout the message. Uh, there are blue Bibles in some of the baskets in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those Bibles, not only to read through it this morning, but also just to have it. So walk out of here with it. We would love to give that to you as a gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16-33. through 33. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 16, See the Apostle Paul speaking. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as a Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews of forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is God's true and authoritative word. Let's pray over it together. Lord, we are overwhelmed with thanksgiving because you have given us once again this Sunday morning an opportunity to hear from your precious word, and to be completely changed. This has transforming power that really nothing else has. And so, Lord, may we handle it with seriousness, with joy, with care, and may your spirit work so powerfully that when we leave here, we would say to one another, God has done such a great thing among us this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in academic contexts like ours, we are used to establishing credibility by making lists. We establish credibility by making lists. You probably made some kind of list when you applied to your school or to your degree program, a list of accomplishments and honors. You put your your weighted GPA on there, which are just ridiculous these days, they're keeping up with inflation. You know, I got an 8.75. Um, you tried to decide if your, your high school marching band co-freshman of the year award should make the cut. You agonized over that. You felt like you were an exceptionally good lake lifeguard, but it was hard to capture that excellence on the application. You know, no one died while I was working, and I'm really good at at turning my head. You agonize over this so you can establish credibility, get into your program, get into your degree program, or if you're looking for a job, you have a CV, you know, you have a resume, you have all of those articles on there that you published with totally pretentious titles that nobody outside of your field can possibly understand. And by the way, we're not the first people to make these credibility lists. We're not. Caesar Augustus did this, and a monumental inscription called, translated into English, the Deeds of the Divine Augustus. Yes, the Deeds of the Divine Augustus. And one excerpt reads like this. I celebrated two ovations and three triumphs, and I was 21 times saluted as the Imperator, The Senate decreed still more triumphs to me, all of which I declined. On 55 occasions, the Senate decreed that thanksgiving should be offered to the immortal gods on account of the successes on land and sea gained by me or by my legates acting under my auspices. The days on which thanksgivings were offered in accordance with decrees of the Senate numbered 890. In my triumphs, nine kings, or children of kings, or led before my chariot. At the time of writing, I have been consul 13 times and am in the 37th year of tribunician power. So we've been making lists for a long time to establish credibility. We know how to celebrate ourselves in the form of a a list for, for gaining opportunities. But when it comes to establishing credibility, as a Christian, the calculus is very different. It's an entirely different atmosphere, or at least it should be. And it's God's providence that Second Corinthians raises this matter of credibility because Christians increasingly have a credibility problem, both externally and internally. We live in a cultural moment in which, according to you, Many social commentators, Christianity is no longer considered to be neutral, but negative. The progression is, maybe back in the day, Christianity was seen as a positive social good, then neutral. But many are now saying, and you can have a debate about this, of course, it is now perceived very negatively. And Christians themselves are having a very difficult time determining who they can trust, including national leaders and folks in their own church Families. So what makes a Christian credible? We have a credibility problem, so it's worth asking, what makes a Christian credible? We won't exhaust this topic this morning, but our our passage does give us a lot to work with. Two reflections. A credible Christian, number one, dismisses boasting. And then this is where things really get surprising. Number two, a credible Christian actually embraces weakness. A credible Christian, number one, dismisses boasting, and then secondly, a credible Christian embraces weakness. Let's get started with that first reflection. A credible Christian dismisses boasting. The past two Sundays, we spent a whole lot of time giving you some context for chapters 10 through 13, so I won't repeat all of that right now. If you're just joining us, you mainly need to know that the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter, is pushing back against some opposition that emerged in Corinth gradually to both his ministry and his message. And he's not pushing back against this opposition for his own gain, but for the spiritual benefit of those in Corinth who were being led astray by Paul's opponents. So this is a pastoral concern here, not really a personal concern. And these opponents were spiritual leaders. Paul somewhat sarcastically calls them super apostles. They were these super apostles who were ultimately proclaiming a different, as in a false, Jesus and a different gospel. And these super apostles gained a hearing in large part by attacking Paul's credibility. He's a poor speaker and he lacks charisma. He's not much to look at. He doesn't really dress the part. He suffers just just way too much. There's got to be a line somewhere, and Paul has gone way past it. Beginning in this back half of chapter 11, Paul challenges these opponents, this opposition, in a two-part speech in the first part has a a fascinating, almost contradictory flavor to it. Look at verse 16 through the first part of verse 21. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. This is referring back to verse 1 where Paul asked the Corinthians to bear with him in a little foolishness, even though he himself isn't foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So in Paul's eyes, boasting with personal confidence based on pedigree or earthly accomplishments, as he says in verse 18, boasting according to the flesh, that kind of boasting is foolish. Or you might alternatively say, it's the mark of a fool. He's very direct, he's very frank about this. Why? Why is this so foolish? Because that kind of boasting is completely out of sync with the gospel of grace that Paul was preaching. The gospel of God that emphasizes our spiritual deadness apart from Christ and our reconciliation to God on behalf of Christ and in Christ. We do not make ourselves righteous or spiritually impressive, but instead we become the righteousness of God on account of Jesus, who for our sake was willingly made to be sin by the Father, even though he knew no sin. So if you want to out yourself as somebody who professes to be a Christian, but either doesn't understand the true gospel, or doesn't really believe it, then boast all day long about your spiritual accomplishments. If you want to out yourself, do that. If you're a spiritual leader, here's what you should do. You should be overwhelmingly self-referential when you teach and preach, when you write your books. You should fill them with personal anecdotes that seem humble but are subtly self-congratulatory. You should make sure your conference bio mentions that you started a church in the bathroom of your basement with five people, but now it has 5,000 people because God, or if you're not a spiritual leader per se, at least not in the vocational sense. Here's what you should do. You should make your way to social media and you should, you should humble brag with all of your might. You know, you should talk about how inadequate you are as, as a parent, but then mention the family devotions that you practice at the dinner table as the only thing that keeps you going. You should take a picture of your Bible open at the coffee shop. You should share some photos of you with that Famous leader you know better than most, or maybe just do a little bit of that that name dropping. If you want to be foolish, there's a the roadmap. Check these boxes, and then you will be a bona fide fool. In fools, you can see this in verse 20. They end up. We talked about this last week too. They end up harming people under their care and harming themselves, a, a self-owned kind of thing. They, they make slaves. They, they devour, probably here, they devour you financially. They, they kind of rip you off. They take advantage of you. They put on airs. They strike you in the face, possibly, literally, imagine that, or metaphorically through authoritarian, disparaging comments and insults. That's what fools do. And, and then Paul apologizes. You can see this in verse 21. He apologizes, I put that in air quotes, for being so weak, and he's citing the criticism here from his opponents, that he has therefore not been able to participate in the abusive, authoritarian behavior of said opponents. Clearly the most biting example of sarcasm in this letter, and there are many examples. But... And here's a truly, this, this is a fascinating part of the speech. He says this, we know this, but Paul decides to play the game and at least initially match their, according to the flesh, boasting. Corinthians, since these opponents have been able to gain a hearing among you through such foolish boasting, I'll boast this way as well, so maybe now you'll listen to me. You want to play this game? I'll play the game. I don't have a direct command from the Lord to do this, verse 17, but I feel some need to do this to gain a hearing and hopefully keep your ship from sinking under the weight of these spiritual pirates. And then we find the boast from Paul in verse 22. Are they, in other words, his opponents, Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. So if Pedigree matters to you guys, and it, it really did, even though it shouldn't have mattered at that level. Then, then check this out I'm purely Jewish, ethnically, spiritually, and socially. These opponents have absolutely nothing on me. There is no logical reason why you should be listening to them, but then dismissing me. And here I'm reminded of what Paul says in another biblical text, very famously, specifically Philippians chapter 3, verses. 4 through 6, Paul says, If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's his list. So, Corinthians, and now I'm going back to chapter 11, verse 23. Corinthians, even if these opponents are servants of the Lord, which Paul has already argued that they are certainly not, I would be just as much a servant, actually an even better one, and we'll get to that in a minute. All of this, um, it feels contradictory, doesn't it? It feels like Paul is kind of getting sucked into this game. Why do something you've just condemned? Why Why jump into the mud? At least two reasons. At least two reasons. Number one, Paul wanted to expose the hypocrisy of the Corinthians. Playing by the rules of your own game, you should actually be listening to me, not just by my opponents. You're being completely inconsistent. Reason number two, though, and this is what I want to focus on, There's something in Paul's case, in his very specific case, there is something about playing the game especially underneath the sarcastic tone that Paul has been employing that really does expose the foolishness of the game. You know, today it would be like saying, you should pay special attention to my ministry and message because I also have really nice hair that I can slick back and, and, you know, just the right way, and my clothes are very stylish, you know, they're, they're casual, but they're thoughtful, and 10,000 people go to my church, and I'm on daytime TV, and my preaching is like a well-polished TED Talk. You hear that, and it kind of exposes the folly of the whole deal. You hear that, and you realize, okay, maybe these are not very good reasons to accept this guy, and dismiss this other guy. It's ridiculous, and it sounds convicting. It should be. So Paul dismisses this kind of boasting as being foolish, but he does it anyway, in part to demonstrate just how foolish it really is. Church, are we being taken in by boasters, or are we boasting ourselves? Are we being taken in by boasters, or are we boasting ourselves? We, we live in such a, a boastful context. My gosh. Smartphones and social media shouldering plenty of the blame here, along with pressures to perform or to, to justify our identities. So we would be absolutely kidding ourselves if we didn't imagine that such boasting could leak right into the house of God. Christians in every age are tempted to adopt the conventions of their moment, basically to baptize foolishness for supposedly noble and spiritual causes. And let me tell you, as Christianity continues to be perceived negatively, it will be so, so tempting to embrace worldly boasting for the sake of winning a hearing with outsiders. So both so tempting. I, how tempting it will be to communicate. Oh, we're, we're not like those, you know, those, those lame, historically backwards Christians over there who are, who are trapped in the 90s. You know, we're not like them. We, we have style. We have sophistication. You know, we... We are socially engaged in exactly the right ways. We're in touch with contemporary philosophy and intellectualism. We have better theology. And as the pressure in our society ratchets up into the stratosphere to kind of perform our identity, we'll be inclined to perform our Christianity in a way that impresses the people that are part of our Christian tribes. We will be very tempted to make sure everyone knows, you know, via social media or or casual conversations or whatever, that we have the right political persuasions, and we've adopted exactly the right causes. We will be very vulnerable, we'll be tempted to be very vulnerable about our, our shortcomings in a moment that prizes vulnerability, but at the end of the day, we're vulnerable in a very curated way that still makes us look good and drop some hints about our strengths. Every one of us will be tempted to do all of that. You know when, We'll go on social media when I when I wake up at 5 a.m., you know, I just I have such a hard time focusing on my Bible reading, and and sometimes I'm dragging so hard I don't even make it to my CrossFit workouts on time. Then we'll get on there and we'll post a picture of ourselves late to our CrossFit box and it'll say like hashtag bad workout. We know what you're doing, right? Please know, and I say this as, as warmly, as pastorally as possible, that society is really not impressed by boastful attempts at relevance. And if anything, it kind of mocks them. Can't, I can confirm. It really doesn't move the credibility needle. Folks can see right through it. And please know that the only folks in your church family who are going to be impressed by this sort of Christian identity performance are the folks who are doing exactly the same kind of thing and want you to notice and be impressed by them as well. It becomes this, very, this, this hyper-affirmative kind of thing with exactly zero substance. And the folks who are truly struggling, who are truly hurting in the midst of all of that, people who are really desperately searching for experiences of God's grace rather than, than vapid affirmation, they end up feeling even more discouraged and even more marginalized credible Christians who are filled with Holy Spirit power discernment catch this. They catch this kind of boasting and they stay out of the game. They don't want any part of it. Which is one reason why some of the most credible and faithful Christians labor in, honestly, in relative obscurity. You never hear about them. They're there you just don't notice them, but God certainly notices them, and even though they're, they're relatively anonymous, they're, their faithfulness really is moving the needle, even in a very skeptical age. And they keep going, even though they may not be celebrated at all in society or even in the Church. But credible, truly spirit-filled, gospel-shaped Christians don't just catch this kind of boastfulness and stay out of the game. They do something different in response. They fill this void with something else, which interestingly may entail another acceptable kind of boasting. And that brings us to our second reflection. A credible Christian embraces weakness. So we dismiss the boasting, but what do we do instead? What goes into the hole? Embracing weakness. As we mentioned several months ago at the beginning of our 2 Corinthians series, at the time of Paul's ministry, Corinth was this metropolitan port city and the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, which today is part of southern Greece. And what were the values of the Roman Empire, which of course waxed and waned a bit depending on the city and the province. What were the values? Strength. Honor. Conquest. right? Accumulating wealth. The kind of values in which it made sense for Augustus to write out the deeds of the divine Augustus for public consumption rather than humbly deflecting public praise. That kind of environment. In being a wealthy metropolitan center in which the worship of Roman gods and and goddesses was very prominent, these kinds of values surely had some cultural clout in Corinth, which explains some of the actions of Paul's opponents. they They were just peddling to their cultural moment. They wanted to be relevant. You value strength? Then we'll look strong. Given this context, Paul does something absolutely shocking. I cannot emphasize to you how shocking this is in verse 23. Something that shows us he was, he was most definitely not trying to exalt himself by stepping into the mud in verse 22. In verse 23 all the way to verse 29, with an example to prove himself in, in verses 32 and 33, but basically in verses 23 through 29, Paul boasts about and embraces various kinds of weaknesses that were completely out of step with cultural values. I mean completely. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And here's where it gets shocking. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with, far, uh, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews of forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. So instead of going on to boast about how many churches he started, how many souls he's won, how many people he's baptized, which in another letter to the Corinthians he says he can't even remember how many people he's baptized. Instead of doing all of that, he boasts to the Corinthian church about his weaknesses. Here's my CV, Corinthians. And you can find records of some of these in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Here's my CV, okay? I've been imprisoned. On many occasions, I've been beaten by the Jews with the maximum punishment allowed under Jewish law, and I've been beaten by the Romans. Very balanced beatings, right, in Paul's life. I've had all kinds of issues with boats, my goodness. And natural disasters involving water. I've faced all kinds of dangers from folks with nefarious intentions. I've been opposed by false shepherds, these opponents that he's been talking about. I've dealt with the rigors of of sleeplessness and, and food and water shortages and so forth because of my very frenetic travel schedule. And perhaps most surprisingly, and I think most powerfully, Paul admits his daily anxiety for all of the churches underneath his care. As many scholars have noted, this anxiety is is really best understood as as a healthy concern for these churches, not not some kind of failure to rest in Jesus and trust him. Or to put it another way, Paul, the spiritual shepherd, loves his sheep in a way that actually moves him emotionally and is costly for him. This is powerful. I mean, that is the heart of a true shepherd, someone who has that kind of anxiety, who who loves his sheep so much that he experiences this kind of emotional moving in in a way that, that is costly. It's also very surprising. It's powerful, but it's also a very surprising admission. Because let me put it like, like this leadership conferences in Paul's day would have encouraged a kind of aloof strength. You want to be a leader? You're kind of aloof and you're strong. A disposition in which you authoritatively manage your people instead of being moved by them. I mean, Caesar Augustus wasn't bragging about being emotionally moved by his subjects. John Maxwell would have, had, would have had a heart attack. Tony Robbins would have been very stressed out by these Roman leadership conferences. So Paul's admission of his sincere love and concern for his people was countercultural, and it was honestly kind of embarrassing. Notice that this kind of, of Pauline boasting is very different than a humble brag, right? It's very different. This, this is not getting on social media and lamenting that you had you know, less devotional time than you normally do because your kids are sick, right? or lamenting that you didn't do as many reps as you normally do on the squat rack because you helped somebody move and you were sore. This isn't that kind of thing. This is like getting on social media and saying you had an accident in your pants. It wins you that kind of credibility. He wasn't going to be winning any cultural chips for this kind of thing. He wasn't going to be making himself relatable or whatever. None of that. In fact, he was was actually confirming the critiques that his opponents were making. He was confirming the critiques that his opponents were making, and, and even offering evidence to back all of this up. I mean, he's, he's kind of like going over the top here. So, so he says all of this, and then he says, in case you think I'm exaggerating, consider, and now I'm in verses 32 and 33, and you can find this actually in Acts chapter 9, consider that, I, that when I went to Damascus shortly after becoming a Christian, religious authorities got mad on my account, because I was teaching in the synagogues, and I was preaching in the synagogues. They got mad. So with support from the governor at the time, they were guarding the city in order to arrest me and assumably to kill me. So I escaped, check this out, opponents, by agreeing to be plopped into a basket like a bundle of clothes and lowered through a window in the city wall. Again, this is not, look how spiritually zealous I am. This is weakness personified. It doesn't get any worse than this. In their cultural moment, why boast this way? Why do this? Why, why embrace weakness so counterculturally? At least three reasons that I'll mention here. Reason number one Paul is very intentionally trying to rewire Corinthian thinking when it comes to discerning credible Christianity, both in their leaders and in themselves. He wants to help them vet their spiritual leaders, as we discussed last week. Plus, he wants to prepare them for the difficulties and for the suffering that will certainly be part of their lives as they follow Christ. A countercultural reality not unlike the aversion to suffering that we're experiencing today. It's really, really easy to think that suffering means you're doing something wrong. But difficulties and suffering are very often the mark of spiritual credibility, even if that connection isn't officially recognized by the world or even in certain sectors of the church. And conversely, easy living is often the mark of spiritual sleepiness. Show me a Christian with scars, and I will show you a very faithful credible Christian. Because faithful Christian living is cross-shaped living in which we pour ourselves out for other people sacrificially. That's what it is. And I sure hope that encourages those of us this morning who are accessing the depths of human weakness. God intentionally works through all of this, by the way, to make a remarkable impact on the world, and we will get into that more next week. Reason number two. So reason number one, Paul is trying to rewire the Corinthian minds. Reason number two. He's telling them that God is at work through their weaknesses and his weaknesses, which ends up, here's what it does, it spotlights God's perfect power and grace in a way that brings God glory and catalyzes conversion and revival, even in the most difficult places and contexts. Again, we're going to talk more about that next Sunday in the beginning of chapter 12, which makes this point particularly clear. And again, if that's true, I cannot imagine a more encouraging consideration for those who are accessing the depths of human weakness. God is at work through your weakness to catalyze conversion and revival locally and around the world. That's how he does it. Reason number three why Paul is boasting in this weakness. God works through human weakness because faithful perseverance in the midst of suffering, it turns heads everywhere, all of the time. And the main reason it does so is because it's one of the clearest windows into the heart and the ministry of Jesus, who lived a life full of difficulty and unimaginable suffering because of his great love for his children, because of his mercy and grace. So even in a society like ours that that really has no idea what to do with suffering and, and recommends all sorts of ways to avoid it and protect ourselves from it, Even in our moment, there is something so credible about faithful perseverance in the midst of difficulty and suffering. There there is something very compelling about it that is is meaningful to outsiders and points them to something or someone beyond ourselves. There is something about that is just so hard to argue with. I want to close with this example. Then after that, I want to make one more comment about moms. Uh, last week, I mentioned that we're in the midst of a spiritual pandemic of sorts. There there's, seems to be spiritual leadership failures everywhere. There's all these reports of abuse in the church. There's very fiery conflicts within churches and within denominations. And right now, things especially right right now, like this morning, things like massive, glitzy, megachurches seem to be taking the most hits because they're in the public eye and they're often the easiest institutions to quibble with when it comes to excess and slickness and so forth. It's often really easy to dismiss their credibility. Are there faithful megachurches and faithful famous pastors? I sure think There are, but still, these are the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And there are a lot of bad examples to choose from right now. But you know what's much harder to argue with, and therefore much more credible and compelling? Faithful Christianity under duress, such as the kind of resilience you can learn about and the lives of Afghan Christians, most recently in the midst of the Taliban's return to power. There is a podcast available right now that I would encourage you to listen to called The Escape from Kabul. And it tells the story of a number of folks in Afghanistan who became Christians in the past you know, 10 or, or 20 years. The spotlight tends to be on, on Luke and Sarah who met some missionaries from South Korea, Well, Luke did first, and over a couple of years he became a Christian, and he told his wife about it, before they got married, and they still got married, and she became a Christian, and then they started connecting with other people in Afghanistan, they started becoming Christians, and then Luke and Sarah were arrested, and Luke was kept in prison for a while, and experienced various forms of torture, and and then he was released, and then he made his way to Dubai, where he ended up doing a number of things, uh, helping kind of organize a a house church network in Afghanistan of Christians, and then eventually, here this past summer, helping various uh, Christians in Afghanistan get out when the American military was leaving Afghanistan. You can find that whole story on the podcast. I don't want to give you all the spoilers. I don't know. There's... There's something about that that's very hard to argue with. You can argue with the glitz and the glamour and the slickness. You can quibble with that. But there's something that's just so compelling about people like Luke and Sarah embracing weakness, following Jesus even though they know that their lives are very much in danger and it will be costly. It's just a question of how much. And I would encourage you if you're here and you're not following Jesus and you've kind of dismissed Christianity because of the glitz and the grammar and the leadership failures, and I get it. But what about those guys? What about Luke and Sarah and all these believers in Afghanistan who have nothing worldly to gain and everything to lose on account of following Christ? I want to say one more thing. Um, to moms, just before I, I switch to the communion, there, there's something that we talked about here in our message this morning in which we, we emphasize that, that faithful Christians tend to have scars, but God is using those scars to nourish people and to turn heads. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we talked about a few weeks ago and I saw someone actually use and apply to moms just this past week, I want to pass this along to you. Remember when Paul says that, that death is at work in him, but, but life in you. So he's, he's taking all kinds of hits. His life is being threatened. He's experiencing all kinds of weakness. He's experiencing the kind of things we were just talking about. But one of the reasons it's worth it is because life, is at work in the people that he's ministering to. He's not saving them spiritually, but God's using his ministry to catalyze revival and spiritual renewal. And so I want to say to moms, especially those who feel like they're just really at the end of it, as one author put it this past week, I saw that, you know, those of you who feel like motherhood, it really feels kind of like death. That there is a real sense in which death might be at work in you. There are real scars, but it's important that you understand that you know on this Mother's Day that life is flowing through the people that you are caring for in very powerful and meaningful ways, through your kids, through the people that are around you, that are watching you care for your children. Especially, I would say, I, th- I think the people who experience probably the most acute scars are, would be single moms, And understand that in the midst of those difficulties, God is using your experiences of human weakness, your experiences that feel like death, to bring life to your kids, life to people. In our city, and we love you very, very much. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray for moms especially those who are really, it's not just sort of hypothetical, it, it does feel a little bit like death right now, not because they don't love their kids, but because it's hard, and they're pouring themselves out. And the last two years, I think, has been, has been profoundly difficult as we've navigated this pandemic, all the twists and turns. Convince Him, Lord, that even though things may stay hard, I, I can't guarantee specific promises about that, that you are at work through them, bringing life to their kids, that the nurturing, the sacrificial care is bringing life to the city. And the image is Jesus, who gave up his very life for his children. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. For you. Do this whenever you eat of it, in remembrance of me. And then, in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup and, as he poured it, he said, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it, in remembrance of me." The apostle Paul says, "As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death, until he comes again." In setting up this meal, Jesus was telling his followers, "I am about to embrace." the depths of human weakness, even to die and to be tortured that you might have life. Come and be encouraged, be nourished by that consideration, especially those of you who are weary, those of you who are just kind of at the end of it. And if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, we would encourage you, instead of taking this meal, which you wouldn't say that you believe in, we would encourage you to reflect on what we've just been talking about. Would you follow Christ? Maybe the, the glitzy stuff is, is just really off-putting, but what about, what about stories like those we just talked about involving Luke and Sarah? What about them? Sit on that. I'm going to pray, and then after I do, there can be an elder or a deacon at either side of this table with a, a cup and a bowl, or excuse me, just a, just a bowl, and they're going to hand you a wafer when you approach them. So you can simply, after I pray, come out of your seat, grab a wafer, then you'll pivot and find some cups of juice right here, and you can take one of those. Uh, and you're welcome to go back in your seat and eat this meal, or you can, you can eat it up here. Um, however you want to do it, it's up to you. Um, and then the elder or deacon who served the meal will be in the lobby after the communion's over, and we would love to pray with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we do give you praise for this meal. Would you use it not just to help us remember things intellectually, as important as that is, but also to, to nourish and fortify our faith by your grace, by the power of the Spirit who is with us. And we do ask, Lord, for Holy Spirit-driven conviction of sin, that we can air it, that we can repent of it, enjoy your grace afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: How can losses lead to joy?
2: Stand and sing with us.
1: Lost our.
3: been wonderful worshiping with you. Just again, reminder of moms uh, that you have those bottles back in the lobby, back in the, the kids' areas. Here, this benediction, and we'll sing the doxology together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Praise God from whom
2: amen amen go in peace
4: here we go sing praise to god who reigns above the god Our salvation, He fills my soul with sweet relief and makes my faithless. is in the Lord to God all praise and glory 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 Let all who claim Christ's holy name Give God all praise and glory let all who lean on the Spirit's strength Declare the one story Cast every idol from its throne For Christ is Lord and Christ alone To God all praise and glory 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 to God